0: This is the podcast that explores the full potential of the East of England. Welcome to Eastern Promise. I'm Mike Rigby and you are very welcome indeed to episode 49 of Eastern Promise. This week I'm joined by the Member of Parliament for the City of Cambridge and Shadow Minister for Farming and Fisheries, Daniel Zeichner. We'll be chatting about Daniel's constituency, his co-chairmanship of the East of England All-Party Parliamentary Group and how he views the future of our region, including his wish to be the next Minister for the East of England. As Shadow Minister for Farming and Fisheries, Daniel recently gave the keynote at the Norfolk Farming Conference. I'll be talking to some of the speakers and organisers of this hugely successful event. And finally, what view of Suffolk makes you swoon? What Norfolk Vista makes your Lister? Your favourite views in the East are this week's Crowd Sorcery. But first, tune in to the latest developments in our region with the Eastern Promise News Round. Nine projects across Greater Norwich have been put forward to get over £10 million in funding from the Greater Norwich Growth Board, a unique partnership made up of Broadland District Council, South Norfolk Council, Norwich City Council, Norfolk County Council and the New Anglia Local Enterprise Partnership. These projects will attract match funding, boosting the total investment to a shade short of £27 million. The nine projects are a new 3G pitch in Aylsham, a cycle route between Heatherset and the Norwich Research Park, access improvements to Hethel Innovation Park and the Roman Town at Venta Isenorum, a new country park in Cringleford, access improvements to Queen Hills Park near Cossey, and regeneration work to improve Sloughbottom Park and Guildhall and Exchange Street in Norwich. Councillor John Fuller, leader of South Norfolk Council and chair of the Greater Norwich Growth Board said the GNGB is making real improvements for residents and visitors to Greater Norwich. This investment will ensure that essential infrastructure is delivered alongside housing growth, giving our local communities long-lasting benefits that will make a positive difference to their lives. All power to the GNGB partnership. Eastern Promise supports this investment wholeheartedly and looks forward to seeing these nine projects come to fruition. Shipping news now, and the government has given the go signal to Freeport East, allowing the Freeport to be delivered and creating 13,500 new jobs. £25 million in government funding will provide a further enhancement to the Freeport's infrastructure. Steve Beale, Chief Executive of Freeport East, said, This is a major milestone for Freeport East, and the result of a great deal of hard work from all our partner organisations. Freeport East is a locally-led initiative but has global connections and ambitions. The Freeport has three main development sites at the Port of Felixstowe, Harwich International Port and Gateway 14 near Stowmarket, where work has already begun. Steve Beale went on, we will look to partner and collaborate with all organisations interested in the economic success of the region and encourage parties to get in touch with us directly. Ambitious plans are afoot to create a green energy hub in Harwich, and all the developments have an emphasis on supporting innovation, skills and net zero, as well as acting as anchors for wider economic impact. And whilst we're looking at net zero, healthy living and, a phrase guaranteed to strike fear into the heart of couch potatoes everywhere, active travel. Congratulations are due to Cambridgeshire and Peterborough combined authority, which has been successful in its bid for nearly £1 million in active travel funding from the Government. This funding will provide technical expertise to help more people get walking or cycling short distances and has been awarded to the Combined Authority and its delivery partners, Cambridgeshire County Council and Peterborough City Council. The bid will fund an active travel advocate who would work with the proposed Active Travel Centre of Excellence at Cambridgeshire County Council to nudge people into being more active. The bid was piloted by the Combined Authority's Head of Transport, Tim Bellamy, who expressed his delight that the Combined Authority, Cambridgeshire County Council and Peterborough City Council will be able to create a joined-up infrastructure for greener, cleaner and healthier travel. Chair of Cambridgeshire County Council's Highways and Transport Committee, Councillor Alex Beckett added, by working with partners and developers, we want to ensure active travel is a part of everything we do. By doing so, will support not only health and well-being, but contribute to the county's target of net zero by 2045. It's encouraging that ambitious net zero targets are being set across the east of England, and it might be my fancy, but I see a bit of friendly rivalry developing between local authorities. Case in point, Suffolk County Council has reduced its carbon emissions by 15% or 4,000 tonnes of CO2 in the last two years on its ambitious journey to net zero by 2030. The Council has been keen to lead from the front with its ambition to reduce its own emissions and energy costs, whilst inspiring and supporting others to do the same. Suffolk is one of only a few local authorities to publish a carbon budget which looks in detail at its environmental impact to better identify actions needed to reduce emissions. Councillor Richard Rout, Deputy Leader and Cabinet Member for Finance and Environment at Suffolk County Council, said, The council has made incredible progress in the last few years to reduce its carbon emissions. But we are very open about the fact we still have a long way to go and much work to do. Since March 2019, when we declared a climate emergency, I have been adamant that achieving net zero by 2030 will be tough. But it's a challenge that we simply must rise to, so that we can stand tall as an authority, knowing that we're doing the best we can to reduce our operating costs as an organisation and eliminate as many carbon emissions as possible. Well done to Suffolk County Council for tackling net zero head on, and I hope other authorities across the region will feel the need to beat you to the punch on this vital issue. But... For more information and support available to Suffolk businesses and residents, go to www.greensuffolk.org. Finally, news of some fresh faces appointed recently across our region. And congratulations to Reshenda Smith of Nurture Marketing, who's been elected as the Federation of Small Businesses Area Lead for East Anglia. Reshenda will be using her marketing expertise and oodles of energy to deliver some exciting events and activities in the coming months. She's stepping into the very big shoes of Penny Morgan of Image Matters. Thank you, Penny, and best wishes to Reshenda. And lastly, the Admiral commands me to signal the fleet that, from September 2023, Evie Witt will be joining Nelson Spirit as Programmes Manager. Evie, from North Walsham, is currently completing her geography degree at the University of Birmingham. She's an ambassador for the Royal Geographical Society and a former pupil of Norwich School, the head of Brookhouse, to be exact. Her interests are leadership, education, community, conservation and the outdoors, and, can I say, how perfectly placed she is with Nelson Spirit. Congratulations, Evie, and Eastern Promise wishes you every success when you take up your post with our friends at Nelson Spirit. And that's all I wrote for this week. Send your news releases to newsdesk at site. Daniel Zeichner is a true East Anglian MP. Before his 2015 election to represent the city of Cambridge in Parliament, he was a South Norfolk district councillor for the Long Row Ward, which has since been lost to the mists of time, better known as the Local Government Boundary Commission. Alongside his duties as the Cambridge MP, Daniel is also Shadow Minister for Farming and Fisheries and led the opposition response to the Genetic Technology Precision Breeding Bill in its committee stages. This can only be great news for our region, which is leading the way on agri-tech, plant science and gene-based technologies. Not only that, Daniel is also the co-chair of the All-Party Parliamentary Group for the East of England, who I'll be featuring on this very podcast later in the year. I met Daniel at the offices of Ideaspace City, who very kindly lent us their wonderful boardroom by the River Cam in the heart of Daniel's constituency. It must be idea space, because it's a glorious, glorious day, just like the last time Eastern Promise came here. But I am absolutely honored to be here with Daniel Zeichner, MP for Cambridge. Mr. Zeichner, welcome to Eastern Promise. It is, it is a pleasure to have you with us.
1: Delight to be with you,
0: Mike. Could I just ask you to just give us a sort of the potted history of Daniel Zeichner, if I may?
1: Well, I mean, my, my great joy is representing this wonderful city, and we sit here and look out over the, the glorious river Cam. It's wonderful. It took me a long time to uh, win the privilege of representing this city. Uh, I fought three general elections in mid-Norfolk, came very close in 1997, um, and then chose probably the worst time to stand for Cambridge, which was 2010, when I came third. Um, And it took Nick Clegg, for whom I'm eternally grateful, and the problems the Liberal Democrats had in coalition, to just get me over the line in 2015. And since then, seven and a half years on, uh, I'm now Shadow Environment Minister, Shadow Food Minister, Food and Farming, so very, and fishing, great for the East of England. Um, And throughout my time in Parliament, I've been conscious of the wider responsibility beyond Cambridge, because I think there is such a thing as the East of England. And... uh, my ultimate ambition in one day may be to be the new regional minister for the East of England. So that's a very short kind of account <laughs> that's of, very good. Of, of where I come from and where I want to be. <laughs> I mean, you, you, Barbara Follett, I think, we, um,
0: as, as, as some some listeners may know, uh, is the previous was the previous uh, minister for the East of England under the the, the last Labour government. Um, it's interesting, and you talk about, uh, you know, you're thinking such a thing as an East of England, and so do I. And the conversations I was having with... I had with Cambridge Ahead yesterday were very much based around um, this isn't Yorkshire there's no overarching um, identity that people like Leeds and Sheffield and and Bradford that that, that they are Yorkshire people Um, but what there is is some collections of very individual places unique places Norwich Cambridge uh, Ipswich Colchester and the rural hinterland around them do you think that's uh, is that a way, to, a positive way to look at the East of England, kind of a collective, um, a cooperative, if you like?
1: Yeah, because these, particularly the historic cities, there's something very precious about them. They've got similar kind of pressures in lots of case cases, transport being an obvious one, housing costs and so on, but they're also fantastic generators, not just of, of, of economic success, but they're wonderful places to visit. Um, and they do have international reputations, Cambridge obviously in particular, but the world knows about Norwich too. And I think the East, there is something special about the East. And when I helped with Peter Alders set up the all party group in Parliament, we kind of said, we're not gonna get involved in the boundaries issue. If you think you're part of the East of England, that's good enough for us. Michael Heseltine who launched it for us wasn't convinced. He he kind of said, well, I think you're wasting your time which is not perhaps the most uplifting message uh, to start with. <laughs> not really, with. no. Um, but I am struck by, that was three or four years ago now, um, because there was, a, I believe, the government made a big mistake in getting rid of all the regional structures. There's a gap between Whitehall and wherever you are, frankly. So the clamour from businesses in particular and local government in the East to have some forum where people came together was really strong. Now, A group of of MPs in Parliament can't provide that structure, but at least we provided a space for people to come together. And now we're finding they are very well attended, well supported, and I think we've got the basis of a a good discussion amongst those kind of people. But But for people who live in the East, they know they live in the east, they watch Look East for goodness sake. Um, I've always quibbled with the BBC a bit about whether Northampton's part of the east and um, I've always (laughs) thought at the weekend I don't want to hear about another murder in Northampton, thank you. Um, (laughs) But one one can debate that endlessly but but for people in the east if we do not come together then there are plenty of other places, the north has got its act together, Um, the south west actually has got its act together the South-East possibly doesn't need to in quite the same way. London is hugely powerful. And if we don't do it, we're missing out. So I don't have the exact blueprint, but what I do know is that there is something there that, that we need to do and it's worthwhile.
0: I, 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 c- I couldn't agree more. That is, after all, why I'm, why I, why I'm doing this and, engage, and engaging you know, people like yourself in these, in these conversations. And um, so yesterday, the conversation, I, uh, again, I had with Cambridge Ahead was my view, I sort of put to them my view, which I'll now ask you to, you know, the, the, the secret is to let Cambridge be Cambridge, don't try and pretend yeah. that Cambridge is something other than what it is, then it d- that has a history other than the one it has, and the same for non and the same t- for, for the other Ipswich and culture to, to a lesser degree. But I think it, you have to do you understand that dynamic and not expect... Cambridge in where it's located in the country you know it, it has a 360 view whereas Norwich and Ipswich I'm being very city centric here but they, they naturally because they are so close to the coast look inwards. What's your reflections on the, the, the people I've just put out there on, on that of 360 view for Cambridge and letting Cambridge be what it is and, and, and it, we're looking for that
1: what well, those that, connections ab- absolutely and what's more is I mean what i 've learned as the MP is everyone wants a bit of Cambridge, quite frankly, if there is any kind of discussion, particularly around developing the economy, people want a bit of Cambridge, so uh, there's lots of talk about uh, what 's called the innovation corridor, which goes from North London up through Stansted to Cambridge, inevitably. And there's a real synergy there, particularly through the life sciences sector and improving the transport links. And I have to say, Cambridge's links to London both ways, and London to Cambridge are really important. But equally, of course, there's lots of talk of the Golden Triangle and the links across to Oxford. Now, I've always taken the view that People in Cambridge and Oxford are less interested in each other, both more interested in London and the wider world. But there is, there is something there. And when you look at the high-tech uh, success stories across the world that Cambridge is competing with, they tend to have that arc hinterland approach so that they can spread some of the pressures. Because the pressure on Cambridge is intense, and there are plenty of people who live in Cambridge who, who think it's big enough already. Yeah, um, And trying to get that balance, and that's for me has been the, the key to this discussion, to keep Cambridge special, because that's what makes it so attractive, but also to allow it to grow, because frankly my view has always been if we don't keep going forwards, I'm afraid you don't stay where you are, you go backwards. Indeed. So, and not everyone agrees with that, and I get that, but that that's my view on it, and certainly I think it's the view of most of the business people I speak to, and understandably they probably would take that view, but I want Cambridge in 30, 40, 50 years to be just as successful um, as it has been. I think there were some far-sighted decisions taken 20, 30 years ago. Um, The Science Park, of course, was hugely innovative at at its time, won the first. The biomedical campus, again, was far-sighted. We, this generation, needs to look ahead and have a view for Cambridge ahead, and people like David Cleveley, who I've been close to for many years, I think, He's often talked about making Cambridge the best small city in the world. Yes. Well, I would love to do that, but I'll tell you, unless we sort out our transport and housing problems and deal with the inequality in the city, we're not going to be able to have that moniker, and that's what I want to see. We, when we did uh, the infamous
0: train event, uh, we, the first panel I held was on transport. And we had with us around the, the, the table uh, Jonathan Denby of Greater Anglia. We had uh, Andrew Holdsworth, who's an Assistant Director of Development at Breckland Council, which, for those not in the know, is, is sort of uh, the, the mid-Norfolk area uh, from Thetford across to Deerham and Swatham. And they own most of the stations, or they, most of the stations, I should say, are in their patch. And we talked about um, how hard it was to get the service to hourly and how Greater Anglia kind of, uh, led that campaign. But we also talked about what the benefits and the possibilities that would flow from unlocking a half-hour service. And yeah. when, you've got, when you throw in the biomedical campus access at Cambridge South, I think for people looking along that, that sweep up to Thetford, which is kind of equidistant mm. between Norwich and Cambridge, and which is really coming along despite its troubled past, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. There, there, there becomes all sorts of opportunities unlocked um, that keeps Cambridge special allows that, that growth, that opportunity to spread along that, that corridor. I
1: mean, Absolutely. And I mean, historically, we know that good transport routes have an impact. Now, I mean, geographers and economists will argue about how these things work. And it is sometimes difficult to spread success. I got in a lot of trouble some years ago by making a, a slightly crass joke about Camborne the time I said it was, a, it was a merger of Cameron and Osborne and everyone wanted to get out, <laughs> um, which went down well at a Labour Party conference but didn't impress the people in Cambourne very much. So I went to see them. Um, and, of course, the problem was they got a settlement which had been built without proper transport links. So here we are, 20 years on, having to put those links in. And basically, done in the right way, I think exactly as you say, there's huge opportunities, whether you're looking across to Milton Keynes and to Oxford or whether you're looking into Norfolk and into Suffolk, we've got a region which has got massive potential and my sense is at the moment we're not making as much of it as we could so we frequently had this debate in Parliament um, that particularly the the greater Cambridge area is one of the few parts of the country actually makes a a net contribution to the Exchequer without being um, difficult about it we would quite like to be able to reinvest some of those resources yeah. in making sure not only can we preserve the quality of life that our residents deserve but actually build the future because i think the future is in this part of the country
0: yeah i mean i i couldn't agree more and and, and for me it's about taking the, the the individual threads of cooperation you already have between the universities uh, cambridge um university University of East Anglia, Norwich University of the Arts, University of Essex, and kind of threading them into a much stronger rope, yeah, that that that, that and a much stronger narrative. But I just change tack slightly, rather than I seem to be encouraging each other to agree on things. Um, could you tell me about a year in the life of the East of England All Party Group?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we um, we have a secretariat that helps us, and we work very closely with the um, East of England Local Government Association. So basically. Our model at the moment is to lobby for resources for the East of England. And that involves basically inviting ministers along to hear from us. They don't always um, come with quite the alacrity we would like, but we've had good support from people like George Freeman. Of course, um, yeah. we're, try- we're hoping to get Lucy Fraser, who's the new house- Housing and Planning Minister, and obviously has an interest um, locally yep. along. And what we try and do is make a evidence-based coherent argument for why... East should have some of the resources it deserves and of course we're helped hugely by the research work that is done by some of the organisations like Cambridge Ahead because one of the things that does gall us and actually I remember having a a series of debates in Westminster alongside um, Heidi Allen uh, when she was the the Conservative MP for South Cambridgeshire um, making the point that the the current um, population projections the government were using were woefully inadequate and massively underestimated the pace of change. And so we keep making that point, and it's important because what it means is at the moment, particularly things like the health service, we are under-resourced for yeah. the population need before you come to the transport issues, which would unlock further economic growth. So there's an important, I think we play an important role sure. in trying to in- inform ministers, um, who of course clearly have the same kind of points being made to them by other regions. But if there isn't a voice, then who makes the argument? And I think the East has, has suffered in the past from individual areas making their representations, but having a collective view on how it might work and go forward seems to me to be a more powerful way of doing it.
0: Yes, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And um, there's, uh, I don't know if you've heard of the smart emerging. I always say I get confused between enabling and emerging, but it is emerging. The Smart Emerging Technologies Institute um, which I was—it's being sort of led by uh, Professor Gerard Parr at the UEA, but it involves Cambridge and it involves Essex, and uh, that's a very, uh, very innovative scheme to create a data—the t- largest data testbed, if if not the world, then certainly in Europe—that uh, companies will be able to come along to that line between to, between Cambridge and Norwich and jack in to this massive pipe yeah. of data that's flowing and mo- use it for modelling, use it for testing purposes and I was encouraging uh, Professor Parr to get in touch and say what a perfect forum to go yeah. along and, and get support from MPs, go and talk to the Secretariat and, and see if you can get added to the, the list, well, we, it's a fantastic we, project. We,
1: we love to hear about these projects and it was interesting, I think I think I have um, had conversations with them before um, in an individual capacity, but yes we, I mean, we want to showcase the, the, the good things that are happening in the East, our, our focus is perhaps a touch narrow at the moment on that particularly focusing on spending reviews and so on of course on the basis that that is the point where we might have most effect but we're under no illusion when we're, we're not a substitute for a development agency or <laughs> properly funded regional structure we are a, a place where the MPs can provide a, a forum and an opportunity for people to come together but it's um it is that personally I would like to see proper regional structures yeah. I was I was closely involved over many years through the last Labour government when we did have um, a regional assembly and so on, and I thought it did a good job. I know not everyone loved EDA, but I felt that it was a, a better way of doing it than what we've subsequently had, which is essentially counties kind of competing against each other. And actually even worse than that, I would say that the, the fall off in the capacity of local authorities to do economic development has led to a real gap And so, although the local enterprise partnerships are supposed to do it, um, it's pretty out of sight. And there's a real, I would say, democratic accountability gap. And of course, in Cambridgeshire, we have a particularly um, obscure model of local governance Mm -hmm. now with not only a combined authority and a mayor, but also the Greater Cambridge Partnership. And that, that does irk a lot of local people who ask, quite rightly, the question, how do we have any purchase over this? So, we've got a mess in local government terms and uh, I think it could be much improved. <laughs> I mean, you, you talked
0: uh, in, in several debates about uh, you've called for a proper regional policy. So is that what it would look like, a kind of, I don't want to say return to or leave, but sort of uh, bringing back something like EDA?
1: Well, um, for my party, uh, Keir Starmer asked Gordon Brown to look at not only the state of the union, which obviously is pretty well placed to do, but also look at the uh, the regional issues in England. So I've been involved in some of those discussions and I don't think we've yet come to a finished conclusion. There's a tension I think because Labour doesn't want to be seen to be creating more tiers of governance. Um, I think someone pointed out we've got five already in some parts mm-hmm, of Cambridge. Yes. Um, so a rationalisation but local government reform is notoriously difficult and complicated. So as we get closer to an election I'll expect to see some plans outlined by my colleagues but I think the one thing we can probably most of us agree on is that the current setup doesn't feel like it works for many people. And certainly the message I get constantly from business leaders is, who do we talk to? Who's in charge? Um, And that is a problem. It's a real problem for Cambridge. I mean, when there was the the famous battle um, over um, AstraZeneca relocating and the Pfizer bid a decade ago, the question was asked, who speaks for Cambridge? The great irony was, it turned out it was David Sainsbury. Yes. unelected, elected, but because of his position as, um, as Chancellor of the University of Cambridge and also a former science minister, he had a kind of moral authority, but he didn't... And that's crazy. A city like Cambridge, which is you know, renowned around the world, and our city council has you know very limited powers as a second-tier authority, and we can't... We've got brilliant potential leaders, but... They just don't have the levers. So I, I would like to see quite dramatic change, but it's difficult to do. Well, it certainly is. I mean,
0: uh, I think there's, there's an extent to which, certainly if we're looking around climate policy, there's an extent to which uh, a lot of the leadership now is, is coming from the private and the third
1: sector. Um, yeah, and that, that's partly because, I mean, our, our democratic structures have been hobbled, I would say. And it's, it's not a party political point. This goes back a long, long time. Local government essentially has been I would say systematically undermined over 20 30 40 years you look back to the Victorian but you know you look back to Chamberlain in Birmingham you look forward back to Arthur South in Norwich mm-hmm. you know these were big figures Patricia Hollis I remember in Norwich you know yes I mean she was able to do big things because then local authorities still have power and that's partly about resources now you know one can argue national governments became nervous about the actions of some councils but we've gone far too far the other way in my view mm. and my sense is most local government leaders whatever party they're from understand the need to be responsible but they they're fretting at their inability to be able to really provide the leadership that local areas lead need and that's what comes to me from business yeah yeah that they want to know who to talk to in Cambridge and when I explain the system I can see them looking glazed already um, <laughs> and so said, can we talk to you? And I said, well, you can talk to me, but I've got no authority whatsoever, other than soft power to actually go and talk yeah. to other people. I haven't got the authority to order a postage stamp. Well, it's funny. I mean, I, I do recall that you can, you, you, you see, if
0: you talk to some officials in local government, they thought of talking to an MP, the blood runs cold slightly because they know that the edict then comes down from on high. Why is this MP writing to us about X, Y, Z? And they all have <laughs> to run around and, and, and justify. Um, uh, I just very briefly want to come on to
1: the Nice new era for a Cambridge economy. Yes. Um, I mean, the the work that Cambridge Ahead and others have done, um, and Matty Bullock, uh, who's a, a really significant advisor in terms of understanding the stats of what's happening in the region, um, I think has been really, really helpful. And again, David Cleaver is often involved in these things. Um, and I think it's, these are really, really Important pieces of work. I mean, starting earlier from the, uh, the, the the review of economic, the independent review on the Cambridge and Peterborough economy, and and it's the kind of work that once would have been done by local authorities, and that's what worries me slightly. That the I'm eternally grateful to people for the work they're doing, but it kind of then runs into a problem, in that it's it, it's unclear who can actually turn it into reality. So, you've got all these brilliant people in Cambridge and, and other places producing suggestions, and then they go into the Whitehall machine. And particularly with the dreadful turnover of ministers, I and mean, le- leaving aside what one feels about the ministers, I, I'm strongly of the view, and I speak as a shadow minister, that it takes time mm. to, to get any sense of the brief. Um, And I've lost track of the number of housing ministers we've had now. Oh, no. I mean, we must be up to 14, 15 in the last decade. If if ministers are only in place, well, at the moment, six months would be good Um, for that time. Then what it means is that there's there's no possibility of any serious long-term thinking. So, I mean, one of my great hopes will be at some point we get... um, I mean, I want a settled Labour government, but actually settle for a settled government. Yes, of any kind. That could actually think through some of these things in a more coherent way because otherwise we just basically stumble from initiative to initiative and just come from seeing um, some of the schools and colleges in this constant bid culture they're bidding against each other yeah Uh, this is no way to run and plan for the future one of the most important parts of our economy and cambridge is it really is and it will be for the future
0: well it's it's predicted Say Savills that by twenty thirty the productivity of Cambridge will have outstripped London by six percent, which to me is an amazing.
1: Piece of well, not surprised because of course we've no, we're, 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 we got we got we've got London housing prices, but Cambridge wages, and the productivity probably will look pretty good, if providing we can keep the people. And this is a something which I think people haven't yet fully kind of on onto. There's this kind of assumption that Cambridge is always successful because it has been successful. The reason it's successful is because brilliant people want to come here mm. and they're not going to come here indefinitely if we can't sort out our housing, our transport and our schools because the money isn't the lure, it's, it's the great science and the quality of life. Yeah. But our quality of life is, I, mean, I feel passionately about this, we've got to sort some of this stuff out, which is why there's a big debate going on around how we improve the local transport system. Lots of people are just concentrating on charging for road space, I'm concentrating on having a brilliant transport system. Because without that, frankly, in a few years' time, if we're not able to attract people here, then Cambridge will gradually, like the rest of the UK, sink internationally. And that is not a good place for us to be in the future.
0: Um, I have to say that I really, I mean, I came here today, largely via public transport. I got the the train from, it goes from Norwich to Stansted, but I obviously got off in Cambridge, and it's beautiful new trains, really good new trains. Yep. Then I got the U bu- the bus yep. from Cam- stop stop eight outside Cambridge, yep. and all the way to the Fitzwilliam. Um, and I think that 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 needs to be sort of again just to go back to what we said before about the, the the half hourly. If we can get that, I think that will be huge, Philip, um, for the region. But I'll just talk about your agriculture brief a bit. You're speaking at the Norfolk Farming Conference.
1: I am, and next next Wednesday, absolutely delighted. Um, Slightly tongue-in-cheek, I'm particularly delighted because um, it was supposed to be a government minister, and the government declined to send anybody, Um, and so they asked me as the shadow minister, which I'm thrilled about, Um, but I'm also thrilled because I'm going around the country the moment I spoke to Northern Farmers in Hexham the other week, and basically, I said, look, I don't expect you to know anything about me. I'm just, you know, a vague, obscure name you may or may not have heard of in Parliament. But if I want to be your minister, then I want to introduce myself to you properly and and be completely upfront with you. I, I will be there to represent the sector. I won't always agree with you, but what I do offer is a genuine dialogue. And that went down very well, actually, not least because I think there were a lot of people there who actually felt la- Labour had kind of rather walked away from the countryside over the last decade. Now, my background was in Norfolk as, as a councillor. Um, although I represent what, you know, the most brilliant urban centre imaginable, I actually think that link between town and country is so central to mm-hmm. England and the East. Um, and I, I love the brief. It's not just about um, primary producers, farmers and fishers, it's uh, the whole food production system. And I've never yet gone to a conference where people are interested in food. They almost always want their lunch. <laughs> um, and you know, it's a serious point because, you know, we, and our food system is both brilliant, but also, I'm afraid, it's not doing wonders for our health at the moment. For some of us, we've got an obesity crisis, and it's also not doing wonders for the environment. So we've got massive challenge to move it from where it is, keeping it affordable and fantastic, but making it environmentally more friendly and more healthy. So what, what bigger challenge could there be in politics? So that's what I want to talk to them about.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure, I know they're really looking, looking forward to it. And um, Belinda Clark, yeah. Dr. Belinda Clark of E, is in
1: the chair. Who's she is, and, and I think um, John Alston, um, who I remember from many years ago. I think oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Um, for me, it's a slight blast from the past, because okay. yeah. um, I remember attending events. I, I used to work for the last directly elected member of the European Parliament for Norfolk, Clive Needle. And we met a, a lot of farmers, land managers, food producers, through what were five very happy years for me. So, to some extent, I'm renewing old acquaintances. I never imagined I'd be back in this capacity, but it's—I'm um, really looking forward to it. Do you know Clark? Clark Willis? I don't. I'm sure you'll meet him right. next week, and, and I. Oh well, his... well, maybe I do from a Zoom call. I'm just saying. I'm... Tell me more. Who? He's—he's—he—he
0: he was. Um... Uh, the uh, CEO of Anglia Farmers, the Farming Cooperative, until, ooh, I can't remember when exactly, but now uh, he's he's kind of one of the leading lights behind the Food Enterprise Park.
1: Yes, in which case we did an event together a few months ago, and I th- he's on my extraordinarily long list of people uh, yes, to see. Yes, very, well, very, the, very long. The, the strange thing has been in the last few months, um, it used to be I had a list of people I wanted to see, now it's turned around, there's a whole list of people who want to see me, now, I couldn't <laughs> yes. possibly comment on why that might be, but... Um, <laughs> I just wish there were more hours in a day, yeah. because it's uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. I, mean, I took on the fishing brief as well this time last year, which is a whole different world, but fascinating, hugely interesting. So I'm also on a tour of the fishing ports. I started in King's Lynn at one of the shell fisheries, and that was a really interesting experience. I would visited them before many years ago when I worked for Clive Needles. So it was a kind of, again, renewing old acquaintances. But the, the, that's a tough industry, yeah. and really hard, and the wash fisheries had a hard time recently. Um, but again, uh, it was fascinating, because for me, I suspect it was the first time many of those people had seen a Labour politician for a long time. And although there was initial suspicion, I hope people left at least with the, were left with, at least with the impression that I was open to dialogue and willing mm. to listen.
0: Well, what's interesting about Clark is, and I know Belinda's the same, but Clark is, and I've interviewed him, uh, and what I'd term an agrifuturist. He is a, he, he. has. He's one of these people who, who is nominally retired, but is never likely to retire. Yeah. And But he has a very clear-eyed view of the future of agriculture and the future of food and where it's going. And
1: that's what I found interesting in his contribution. I think it was a conference that I was chairing a session of, and yeah, and I thought, yeah, this is something... Mean, quite an interesting view of the changes that are going to happen and how quickly mm-hmm. um, and if that's the case then we need to work with them all I'd say is that a, as far as I can see there is a huge farming community out there that doesn't have much of a voice yeah, yeah I talk, I find I'm, I'm beginning to notice this going around all the places I go to are the places all the politicians always taken to well
0: that's right. and, yes, of course.
1: and they're very engaged and they're very good but my experience as being a a very rural councillor in Norfolk 20 years ago, is that there are many farmers who are keeping their heads down and just hoping some of the changes go away. And actually we, we go and see some farmers um, in and around Cambridge for whom that's absolutely the case. Yeah. And I worry about them because particularly with agricultural support being withdrawn, these are like hard times. Yeah. Um, I, feel,
0: I feel like I'm about to sort of commit that, the sin of, sort of also mentioning um, uh, condimentum on yeah. the Food Enterprise Park, which which I get, which yeah. I know that um, the former Prime Minister um, visited, yes. and uh, they're doing incredible things, like looking how they can deactivate the the, the enzyme that makes mustard hot to use yeah. it as an, a, a gluten-free flour.
1: Yes, this has been explained to me as well. So, ah, so um, yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm,
0: I'm, I'm I'm preaching to the to the converted already, or not 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 even converted, the choir. Um, but what I, I Found interesting about that is Dave Martin, who uh, runs, who's the CEO of Condimentum, brought in by the mustard gr- and the mint growers, and he's a scouser. Yeah. Um, and I interviewed I, before we we had met before I interviewed him, and he said, "Oh, but I'll get my CFO to do the interview when you come because he has a Norfolk accent." And I said, no no no, "No, no, 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 no. I want you because you show." That this region can pull in top-tier talent you'd work for quaker you'd work for pepsico you know he knew milling and yeah. he had a lot to learn about mustard milling but he knew milling um and i said and that shows really why we should be huge, hugely optimistic about the future of agriculture in, in, yeah. in the east of england because people like you are coming to coming to, to to make it your home and get involved and think this is great I love yeah. it.
1: well there's so much we can do but again my sense of the farming sector is that People operate within the structure that is set out. There's a politician's job to work out what that structure is. People will do what they're asked to do. Yeah. Um, but we've got to have a bit more clarity about where the future lies. And I think at the moment, I don't think it's unfair to say, that there's a, a certain amount of muddle. And uh, I interrogate the, the current farming minister on a regular basis. Uh, Theresa Coffey and I had our first conversation uh, uh, dialogue across the dispatch box um, last week. I think she was a bit tired having come back from COP27. Yeah. I, I'm sure it'll go better next time. <laughs> I have no comment to make. How are you for time? How much? we can probably done five, ten minutes, I think.
0: Oh, right. Well, in, in that case... I'm um, enjoying myself. This is a trouble. I, I know. It, I, I used to sort of uh, be, be the person to... to sort of, yes. Yeah, that's, and, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and um, I try and it's been an absolutely delight to talk to you. And I try and end on a bit of a, 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 left, a left field question, which I and I'm going to ask you the same one I asked George Freeman when I interviewed him a year ago now. He was the first interview I, I put out there. Parliament is not, should we say, the most well. Well, they do their best, but it's it's a bit of a rickety building, I think he's about to say. <laughs> and the chances of lifts getting stuck is not outside the realm of possibility. So. Which MP, any party, um, George, when I asked him, went way back into the midst of history, uh, would you like to be stuck in a lift with?
1: Well, it sounds absolutely awful, but George and I get on very well. Um, and in, in his, I mean, he, I think he might be the MP who's now either resigned or been sacked most from government in all time, as well as I can make out. <laughs> so I would very happily be stuck in a lift with George. Um, to my horror the other day, I discovered that. Um, I'm in One Parliament Street Ah, uh, with with some of the most rickety lifts Um, and clearly the punishment beating for former senior ministers is to be sent to One Parliament Street and there was a period of time when a certain Boris Johnson was (laughs) was exiled to the second floor and um, I do remember the the much missed and dearly lamented loss of David Amos. David and I again got on pretty well and he and I used to stand in the lift with Johnson looking at each other, wondering what on earth we might say. And I mean, I thought it was reasonable that I had nothing to say to Boris, but David clearly didn't have much to say to him either. <laughs> and then uh, to my absolute horror yesterday, I found myself in the lift with Jacob Rees-Mogg and that would have, that was, that will be a challenge. He's of course, notoriously very polite, Yes. but I have to say this probably not a common ground. So know. we will, we will see how this goes. Um, so I'm, I'm very much talking about, obviously, uh, politicians on uh, the other side of the political spectrum. But um, any of my colleagues from the Parliamentary Labour Party would be fine. And I have to say Chion Wura, who's the Shadow Science Minister and who's just down the corridor from me. Um, I don't think we have been stuck in the lift, but we are frequently in the lift together. And she and I, I'm sure we have an excellent discussion about um, uh, R&D tax credits or something exciting like that.
0: Well, I think you know Chionra and yourself, uh, Norfolk and the East of England would be you know great stomping ground in terms of all the advances in in agriculture and food. Well, as rates. she as she
1: cheerfully says, you don't often come across. Um, I mean, most in most political dialogues, a black Geordie engineer woman, and so she she offers she occupies a niche place in British politics. <laughs> I would say she's also huge fun, and I think she'll be a brilliant science minister. And although as I say. Um, I have a lot of time for George. Uh, he was quite aggressive in a debate the other day, I have to say. He, uh, can, he can
0: get his dander up. He, like, yeah, absolutely. You
1: know absolutely. But, but to be fair, he was defending um, his side against some a, a fairly aggressive charge from my side. So that's what happens in the chamber. But um, I was very pleased when he was restored as science minister. There appears yeah. to be still a little bit of um, misunderstanding with Nusrat Ghani as to who is the science minister, yes. because um, extraordinarily the government appeared to a point two but that's for them to sort out that's for them to sort out well Daniel like it has been a pleasure
0: to sit here and, and, and talk to you about the the, the strength and the, the opportunity in the east of england i wish you every success <laughs> thank you i've in, enjoyed in it in your shadow brief that uh, and and w- whatever happens whether it becomes your uh, ministerial brief we shall see that's for the electorate to decide but thank you for your time it's been an absolute pleasure great thank you Thank you so much to Daniel for coming on the podcast. It was a true pleasure to talk to him and underscores that passion for the East of England and the desire to see our region succeed is truly a cross-party affair. I also need to thank Ideaspace for hosting us. We couldn't have been made more welcome. And I hope this will prompt you to go back into the Eastern Promise Archive and check out my visit to Ideaspace City and Ideaspace West. Long after our chat, Shadow Farming Minister and MP for Cambridge Daniel Zeigner gave the keynote address at the Norfolk Farming Conference. Hosted by the Royal Norfolk Agricultural Association last November at the Norfolk Showground, it was chaired by the extraordinary Dr Belinda Clark of Agritech E.
2: Oh, it's been amazing. I mean, fantastic to see everybody back here after a hiatus of a couple of years where the conference hasn't happened. So we've heard a lot. We've heard from the shadow DEFRA minister about what he will do if and when he became <laughs> got the keys to Nobel House, which uh, DEFRA's headquarters. We've also heard a lot about water in this session. We've just been talking about the regional draft plan for water resources for the east of England, which is one of the most water-stressed counties in the UK. We've also been talking about natural capital and biodiversity and how to manage that and what the policies need to be in place as well as the science you'd expect me to talk about the science so it's been a real fun packed afternoon
0: We look forward to hearing more uh, in the next session Thank you very much Belinda Thank you, Belinda Clark Although I wasn't able to attend the whole day I did arrive in time to hear General the Lord Dannett Chair of the Norfolk Strategic Flooding Alliance speaking in measured yet clear terms about the state of the county's water and the challenges facing us Also speaking to the conference was Daniel Johns, CEO of Water Resources East, and I caught up with Daniel during the coffee break. I'm here with Daniel Johns, uh, CEO of Water Resources East. Uh, Daniel, fantastic conference, supremely well attended by the agricultural community in Norfolk. What have your main takeaways been?
2: Well, first of all, it is fantastic to be here, and this is the first time that I've been to a farming conference after publishing our, our Water Resources Plan for the East of England. And so, yeah, it's so well attended. It's a fantastic uh, lineup of speakers. And to be amongst those to launch our regional plan is just a really, yeah, it's a great moment
0: you talked a lot about at the end of your talk about nature-based solutions and I hope we've captured uh, some of that what do you say are the possibilities of working things like the, the the natural economy and the visitor economy to, to really boost
2: those nature-based solutions and get more money flowing in, in that way yeah I mean since uh, since starting this role back in January I've probably been to Norfolk more times than <laughs> any other any other part of the east of England probably you know, uh, part together because in Norfolk you really get these Kind of climate change and environmental challenges coming together we've got water resources challenges we've got flood risk management challenges we've got water quality challenges and nature-based solutions are a way in which you can address all of those in one go and what we're trying to do at Water Resources East is create not just one project here and another project over there but a portfolio of projects at scale to be able to make a material difference that you can tackle nutrient neutrality you can find uh, new sources of water for farming and you can deliver kind of downstream benefits for flood risk uh, communities at the same time and that's a really exciting prospect of it you know on the basis of these kind of wider biodiversity and carbon benefits too so nature-based solutions for us is definitely part of the way forward
0: i mean we love honest and promise we love that kind of that positive talk that exciting part where what can we do and where can we do it the other thing i, I really took and I, uh, speaking as a complete layman um is uh, from what you said was about um the the the, the the local angles, sort of farmers deciding amongst themselves how water flows, what crop rotation is in place, and what the, And it, do you foresee, or is that or is it already happening that you have sort of like uh, kitchen cabinets, if you will, of farmers deciding amongst themselves, setting their own um, you know schedules for when who'll use water and when, and sort of moving that up the chain. And it, it, it seems positive on every level.
2: It is positive because it's about using the water that does fall within Norfolk more efficiently. We don't all need to kind of hoard water to our Cells and use it for our own purposes when we know half the time we're not really using it it's like everyone has their own car why is that even sensible when it's sat out in the street 98% of the time and a really exciting visit I went on recently was up to Lincolnshire uh, to the Blankney Estates where they have been doing this for quite some time now uh, local farmers getting together sharing water as part of a kind of water pool Uh, Because they know that any particular year, not all farmers are going to need their peak water usage. So you can balance people's peak usage with other farmers as part of other rotations where they need less water. And every year, around a kitchen cabinet or maybe over a table in the local pub, working out who needs what water when, uh, who's going to pay for the maintenance on the basis of the water they're going to use that year. And it's just a, a, a really sensible way to create a water club, a water pool to manage this really scarce water resource.
0: Last question. What is it that gives you most optimism about addressing the challenges that you spelled out uh, and all the speakers spelled out quite starkly?
2: Well, I think I think what's most positive about this is that, first of all, we can do this. There is a way through where there is enough water for for growth, for economic uh, development, for farming production and also to leave more water in the environment for nature. We can do all these things together. Uh, we've shown as part of Water Resources East's plan how you do that at the kind of regional scale. And I'm really excited now to have conversations like today here at the Norfolk Farming Conference about how you can do it at a much more local scale for the benefit of agriculture and other agri-food businesses.
0: Daniel Johns. As you know, the stock in trade of Eastern Promise is weapons-grade optimism. And for that, I turn to two speakers on the huge progress being made in our region in regenerative agriculture. First... James Beamish, Director of the Hokum Farming Company. You were one of the final speakers this afternoon, but it was a really, what struck me, it was a really upbeat talk. There was so much positivity, so much potential being stressed there. Was, was that the message you were trying to convey, or, and how important do you think that is?
3: Absolutely, you know, it's an exciting time for farming. There's a lot of change at the moment, but, you know, change is always good. There's always opportunity comes from change. So, yeah, from a farming point of view, there's some
0: challenges out there, but absolutely positive at the moment. I mean, you you, you stressed one of the the, the words I like most on the Eastern Promise podcast, which is opportunity. And um, how important is it to sort of reach farmers at an event like this, and you know, across the region? There can't be a more Norfolk Norfolk name in farming than Hokum. How important is it to reach farmers and and stress those positive opportunities? I think vitally important, you know... uh there should be more collaboration
3: in farming I think, you know, if we're going to make a successful industry, we've all got to collaborate more in the future so events like that bringing this together it's, you know, it's the home of farming of the RNAA, that's where it should be
0: uh, Well, it's, it's been fantastic to hear, to hear such an upbeat, upbeat take um, on the industry this afternoon, thank you very much You're welcome, thank you James Beamish and also speaking to the conference was Nick Padwick, Farms and Estates Director of Wild Ken Hill Farm Thank you for such a positive talk this afternoon on on soil, soil health, Uh, and I'm speaking as a complete layman on the the matter. Uh, What is the one thing you wanted people in the hall to take away from what you said this afternoon?
3: I think to understand soil succession and actually understand that um, by putting on fertilisers, pesticides, herbicides, really, da- and using cultivations, really damage our soils. They're damaged enough as, as they are, but to be sustainable going forward, what do we have to do? What do we have to put into our soils to to make them come alive? And that is microbes. And it's about how we then uh, take
0: our microbes and apply them uh, to, to make our soils healthy. You, you really, I think, ended this uh, conference, uh, you and your fellow speakers, on a note of, of positivity and hope. What gives you the most optimism going forward looking at uh, agriculture in, in the region as a
3: whole and Norfolk? Well, seeing, seeing what I know we can actually do to our soils now, um, it's just such a shame that I'm coming to the end of my career. Uh, and we've kind of like seen the answer to, to, to the problem of our soils. Um, it's not going to be very attractive to those people who are out there selling fertilisers and chemicals but it's about people understanding what is in their soils and how they can put the life back into their soils to recycle everything that's already there.
0: Well, what a fantastic uh, way to end the conference. What a great, great um, story of positivity there. Nick, thank you very much for your time. Absolute pleasure. And the final word goes to the effervescent Holly Whitaker of the Royal Norfolk Agricultural Association, our hosts for the event.
4: Uh, well, first of all, it was wonderful to see everybody at the Norfolk Showground, you know, this is, bringing the conference back after COVID. So it has just been great to absolutely fill the arena here at the showground. And it's just so wonderful to hear so many proactive speakers you know what the future of agriculture holds for our county and how farmers can be a part of that how we can all work together you know science innovation technology there's just so much out there and so much collaboration and it, it's great to see it's just it's so positive i know we listen to the news and things like that and it's a bit doom and gloom but you come to these and you actually realize that some of the problems we're all facing them and we're all in this together so you know it's like one big cheerleading team we're going to do this
0: well I'm, I'm really pleased you pick up on that because um Eastern Promise, as, as the podcast is, is uh, it's been called relentlessly positive. And uh, you're right. And that's exactly what I got. The, the, yes, there's a lot of doom and gloom in the news, but there's, there is also a lot of hope, a lot of positive stories, particularly in that last session. I wasn't here this morning, but the last session was, was very much what you can do uh, and the benefits and return you can get out of, of, of farming in a, in a particular way. Um, what do you think the big takeaway is for people like me who have absolutely no background in agriculture? What, what should we take from today?
4: Um, I know this might sound very kind of simple, but the takeaway is is that farming's forever. We're we're always going to be here. That for generations to come, there's been generations before us, and there will be generations um, going after us. And that you know, we're here to feed the people of Norfolk. We're here to feed the people of England and the world. And I think that's something. Be proud of your farmers. Know where your food comes from. You know, support your local farm shop. Support your local farmer. Thank a farmer. You know, these guys work tirelessly, men and women, all day to feed the nation and I think the big thing is 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 to go out and thank them and to to be 100% proud of where your food comes from.
0: If the afternoon session was any guide, I definitely plan to attend next year's event in full. To be sure, there were stark warnings on difficulties and challenges ahead but there was also a determination and a belief that Norfolk can rise to these challenges. Thank you very much to our friends at the RNAA for allowing me to join the event. And now... There's no shortage of cheesy Instagram quotes telling us to make time on our journey through life to turn around and enjoy the view. But what's the view you enjoy most in the east of England? Sounds to me like it's time for some. Crowd sorcery. Yes, crowd sorcery. Our first viewfinder this week is a new crowd sorcerer, Christopher Bartram, who informs us that old Hunstanton sunsets take some beating. This is accompanied by a photo of Christopher literally holding the sun. In the palm of his hand, with not so much as a novelty oven glove to protect his mitts. Thank you, Christopher. And from new friends to old favourites, Penny Bartram, Associate Strategy Director of Vice World News and trustee at the Norwich Film Festival, who encourages us further along the coastline. It's an obvious one, says Penny, but you can't beat Wells Next the Sea for a sunset view. How lucky we are to live with this in our region. Too true, Penny, too true. It's all part of the rich tapestry of life in a region that can be anything you want it to be. Thank you also for another magnificent photo of the sun setting out at sea. But it's not just the view of the sun sinking slowly into the surf that swells your soul. There's as much beauty to be found in the heart of the city, if you've a mind to look for it. One who has is Simon Blackwell, founder of Hemp Innovations, who has a recommendation for you, and that's a picnic, brackets, Deliveroo, here at the top of Mousehold Heath in Norwich, on a beautiful evening any time of year. I should point out that other delivery services are available in the Greater Norwich area. Another friend of the show, Michelle Chambers, business development manager at Chaplin Farrant, agrees with Simon and says, she used to park at the top and walk through Mousehold Heath for a few years. She's relaxed... Just talking about it. Michelle also likes the simple pleasures. And not only the show. She also loves seeing something simple like a stack of hay bales whilst out on a run in the winter, with the sun streaming to the back of your eyeballs. Good for mental well-being. A great tip there from Michelle. Take a good look around you whilst out and about, you never know what you'll find. Although someone who might know is Richard Powell, OBE environmental and charity advisor and independent chair. Richard is a well-travelled gent, so I'm excited to hear his recommendations. Crikey! There are so many, says Richard. Standing on the tower of Hardley Church near Lodden, you can see Yarmouth, Norwich and Lowestoft from there, overlooking the once Roman estuary of Braden. Another great church roof tour is St John the Baptist. Norwich's newer and second cathedral, or first, depending on religion, And here you can see the Tudor city of Norwich in all its planning phases. The medieval quarter, the cathedrals, the 30s housing developments, the Baidecker bomb influence, the 60s debacle and modern adjustments. It's fascinating. I'm trying to imagine now what a planning committee would have been like in medieval times. I'm not sure much will have changed. I'm lucky, says Richard, to have worked all over the east. And my favourites are overlooking the Blackwater Estuary from Tulsant Darcy in Essex, the sun rising over the wash at Snettisham RSPB Reserve and the sight of over 100,000 waders coming in to roost at high tide and 70,000 pink-footed geese rising to go inland to feed. Braden and the Holvergate marshes at sunset in September, Grimes' graves near Thetford at sunrise, very spooky, and finally the views of the deben Valley, constable country, From Flatford Mill, especially when the cows and the buttercups are out. They're not on strike as well, are they? I could go on, but no, you say. I most certainly would not, Richard. That's a tour guiding sound right there. And Reuben Woolnuff, geology and environmental science teacher at East Norfolk Sixth Form College, agrees. I wish I could get access to the top of Raveningham Water Tower, says Reuben. It can be seen from miles away, so it would have great views. So, if there's anyone listening from Anglia water or someone with a very long ladder, Ruben Wolnoff has a job for you. Brian Bush, meanwhile, takes us away from the Waveney Valley and back to the coast. Always that massive and beautiful sky at Holcombe with stunning beach and landscape, says Brian. Then a very nice coffee at the lovely newish visitor centre. Couldn't find a picture immediately, So you'll have to imagine, says Brian. Oh, I'm imagining, Brian. I'm imagining. Mm. hmm M-oh. Sorry, a bit distracted with the coffee there. You'll wonder where I've been. What? 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 It's a nice coffee shop. The pastries are really good. No need to get cross on. Yes, all right, all right, all right. (sighs) Rich Saunders, lead technical support specialist and junior developer, is 100% behind you, Brian. Ket's Heights is also fantastic, says Rich. Thank you, Rich. I'm not sure Ket enjoyed his view of the Heights from the top of Norwich Castle quite so much. The final word this week goes to Neil Griffin, innovation and high-performance consultant and 2am problem solver, like, who on earth set my alarm for 2am. Here you go, Mike. This is where I grew up, in Thorpness. This wins the best golfing hole vista too, I think. I was lucky enough to see the house in the clouds out of my bedroom window each morning. And for those of you who don't know, the house of the clouds at Thorpness is worth a Google because it looks like something from children's TV, Dr Seuss, or something Harry Potter might live in. Quite extraordinary. Thank you all for sharing your top views across the region. And thank you all for your photos of aforesaid views. I am afraid I haven't done any of them justice in my brief descriptions. But next week, there'll be a grinding of the gears, as I ask you for the mightiest mechanical marvel in the east of England. It could be the locomotives on the North Norfolk poppy line. Then there's the steam powered Titans of the Charles Burrell Museum in Thetford. Or the Sally B, the Imperial War Museum Duxford's airworthy B 17 bomber. Or sticking with US air power, it could be the mighty V 22 Osprey tilt rotor aircraft that fly from Suffolk but are a regular sight across the region. Modern or ancient? Airborne or pounding the ground? You decide the terms. I read them out. Job done. Thank you to Daniel Zeichner MP for his valuable time. Thank you too to Dr. Belinda Clark and all at the Norfolk Farming Conference. I am really sorry I couldn't cover more of the event. I'm also grateful to you, my crowd sorcerers, and to Engineer49, a man who won't ever die, he'll just be faded out. Most of all, I'm grateful to you for your company. I'll be back next week with Ros Bird, Chief Executive of Anglia Innovation Partnerships, which manages Norwich Research Park, one of the most exciting hotbeds of science and innovation in our region. Until then, bye for now.